Good morning, Redeeming Grace Baptist Church. It's a joy to be here, always a joy to, to be able to uh, be with you and to be able to share uh, God's word, especially today is, is especially a joy. It was a delight to see you praying for the persecuted church. I knew that today uh, was the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. I was doing some of my own research on that and I went to the website that's set up specifically for that and I thought it was uh, very powerful that uh, they shared four specific prayer requests and none of them was for release from their trouble or anything like that but this is what they they ask us to pray for for an unshakable faith for Christian community for access to God's word and for peace and contentment and so that's what we need to pray for, church. And so I know that you will continue to do that and encourage you to do that. As uh, Rick was saying, it is my privilege now to uh, have served at the Baptist Convention of Maryland and Delaware for the past three years. And on behalf of our entire staff and almost 500 sister Southern Baptist churches throughout Maryland and Delaware, as well as Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and New Jersey, where we have a few miscellaneous churches scattered, I want to bring you greetings and just uh, thank you so much for your partnership in the gospel. Uh, Redeeming Grace Baptist Church is a success story of God's grace and his faithfulness to you. Uh, and as a matter of fact, we will be meeting a week from tomorrow for our annual meeting. And I know Pastor Adam will be with us in that meeting and he'll be sharing a testimony of what God has been doing in and amongst the people of Redeeming Grace. And so I'm excited to hear that as well as the others who will be taking part in that annual meeting. Because of your faithful support of the cooperative program, we can accomplish so many things together. Do you know, church, that Redeeming Grace Baptist Church is number 25 in leading the state convention of almost 500 churches? You are number 25. That is amazing for a church that has only been in existence for the, the few short years that you have. As a matter of fact, there's only one other church of comparable age that is outdoing you. And they are number 24. I looked up, they were like, they gave like $35 more to the cooperative program last year than you guys did. And so uh, what a wonderful testimony both of these churches are. That church meets in Middletown, Delaware. Uh, they just finished the construction of a, a new facility that they are now occupying. They did that last August, August of 2020. And as you know, uh, you guys will be going into a very new facility right over here before long. I, I got here early enough to walk around up there and to just praise God on my own out there for, for what is, is happening. And so I'm just so thankful for your cooperation in, in that way. Uh, your gifts to the cooperative program enable us to accomplish things like camps up at Skycroft, disability ministry, uh, pastor training, church planning, uh, special needs ministry that happens, disaster relief, church, children's in, in youth ministry, collegiate ministry, revitalization among churches. I could go on and on with a lot of other things that your cooperative partnership is helping to make possible. Uh, but let me just say thank you. Thank you on behalf of so many other churches who, who want to do so much more like we all do, but we, we can't do everything, but we can do together what we can't all do individually. And so your participation in the cooperative program is just a great, great blessings. Uh, as I mentioned, we will be meeting a week from tomorrow. I would ask for you to pray for God's blessings upon that time together. Also pray for God's blessings upon our time together as we come to his word now. I want to invite you to join me in the book of Genesis. 
Genesis, Genesis chapter 15. I want to consider today one of my favorite Old Testament passages, a, a passage that I believe will dovetail very nicely with what Pastor Adam has been sharing with the five solas that he's been preaching through the past month. Uh, uh, scripture alone, grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, for the glory of God alone. Uh, and as Adam and I were ta- was talking about that this past week, as he was sharing with me uh, that, that he had been preaching through these, I said, what if I preach from that passage in Genesis 15, where it says that Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him for righteousness. And we can talk about the Old Testament gospel because the Old Testament gospel is no different from the New Testament gospel because the gospel is the same in all ages. And so we're going to look at a wonderful passage today that helps us see how God has been at work since the creation of this world to bring a lost people to himself. And so I want to begin today by reading Genesis 15 verses 1 through 6. I'm going to be reading today from the Christian Standard Bible. I know that your pastor preaches from the ESV and there is one reason that I'm going to be reading from the CSV. That's because I've lost my ESV. I don't know where it is. And so I have my CSV, so that's what I've brought with me today. I would invite you to stand with me as I read that passage for us that we might honor the reading of God's word. Genesis 15, one through six. And let me say this before I read the passage. The first name that we will encounter here is Abram. Abram equals Abraham. Now I know that most of you know that. You may not know that though. So I wanna make that clear. And in this message, you'll probably hear me jumping back and forth because I'm just used to calling the dude Abraham. And so uh, the passage today will refer to him as Abram. They are one and the same person. So if you hear me refer to Abraham, we're still talking about the same person. But this is Genesis 15, one through six. This is the word of God. It says, after these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you've given me no offspring. So a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Thank you, please be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. On the Saturday in September of 2013, one of the most deadly terrorist attacks outside of September 11th in our own country took place in an upscale mall in Nairobi, Kenya. Four gunmen, part of the Al-Qaeda affiliate Al-Shabaab, took the lives of 67 people and injured over 200 others. It was by all accounts a horrible disaster. But there was one story of the shooting that ended up receiving a lot of media attention. It was a story of a young mother whose name I believe was Shania Kothair Mashru. My apologies to her because I'm sure I'm butchering that name. But Shania was at the mall having coffee with a friend when the gunfire began. So she dropped to the floor to immediately take cover and she began to hear a a cell phone that was going off near her. Well, she didn't want the gunman to hear that and come over 
toward where she was. So she reached under the person who was laying there on the ground next to her to grab the cell phone and to silence it. And it was at that point that she realized that man was bleeding heavily. This is what she said in the news report. Quote, she said, when I put my hand under him, that's when I realized that this guy had already been shot. There was blood everywhere. There was so much blood, end quote. And it was at that point that Shania made a life-changing decision. She decided to take that man's blood and to smear it all over her face and all over her body in the hopes that the terrorist would come near there and assume that she was already dead and so they would pass over her body. And so she did. And they did when they got to her, assuming she was already dead. Her grisly camouflage saved her life. In those news media reports, she said, I'd love to know who he was because I think his blood protected me. It saved my life. Well, 2,000 years prior, another man's blood saved that woman's life. And not only that woman, but all who will trust in his atonement. That somebody, of course, is Jesus Christ. And he saves not just those who have trusted in his death since it occurred, but even those who were looking forward to his coming and his death prior to its occurring. Today, let's explore this passage in Genesis where we see this justifying work of God thousands of years before it even became reality in space and time. Here we see the Old Testament gospel, that is the truth that the justifying work of God is centered in the person of his son, Jesus. There are several things I want you to see today. Let's jump right in then by considering, first of all, the provider of justification. We see it in this first verse. It's God who is the provider of justification. In verse one, it says the word of the Lord comes to Abram about all of this. Now, earlier in Genesis, Abram had won the battle of the four kings versus the five kings. Maybe you remember reading about that, but now the battle is over and Abram seems afraid. Why is that? Well, if you think about it, oftentimes our emotions will fall apart after a time of danger or a time of, of difficulty. Let me illustrate that with another Old Testament story. Maybe you remember the story of Elijah in 1 Kings after his victory over the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. The wicked King Ahab and his even more wicked wife Jezebel had led Israel astray to follow after the prophet Baal, the false prophet Baal. You know, how in the world can believers buy into, have followers of God rather, buy into following after falsehood like that? Do you ever wonder that? But didn't we see so many supposed believers doing just that a year or so ago with all the untruths surrounding the QAnon conspiracy? Many of those who were buying in that claimed to be followers of God. It was really comparable to this where people of Elijah's day were believing all the untruths about Baal. As a result, in Elijah's day, God brought drought upon the land. For three and a half years, there was no rain. And that led to conflict between Elijah and Ahab, each accusing the other of being the source of the difficulty. And so Elijah announces that rain is about to come and he challenges the prophets of Baal to a contest and he challenges the, challenges the people to determine who are they going to follow? Are they going to follow Baal or are they going to follow God? And so there's this contest on Mount Carmel where a sacrifice is prepared and the prophets of Baal call upon Baal to, to bring fire down from heaven and to consume the sacrifice. 
And of course, as you know the story, that never happens because Baal isn't real and he can't consume the sacrifice. And then Elijah in dramatic fashion douses the sacrifice with water and he calls upon God to consume the sacrifice and God sends fire from heaven and, and consumes the sacrifice and it laps up all the water that's surrounding the, the trenches there. And it became immediately clear to the people who were there who the true God was. And we read in, in, in the scripture there that immediately after that event, 1 Kings 18, 45 says, the heavens opened and the sky grew dark with clouds and wind and there was a downpour. Three and a half years there had been no rain and now there's a downpour. You would think that this victory for Elijah would be the cause of celebration, that he would be on cloud nine, that he'd be pulling his suspenders back and say, I told you, see, you should have listened to me. But instead, what do we read? In 1 Kings 19, he goes into a deep, dark depression after these events. He goes off and he pouts. Maybe that's what we see going on with Abram here. He's just won a great victory, but now he's off in a depressive state. Maybe Abram thought about his impending fate. Maybe he thought the king of Sodom, who, from whom he didn't take any spoil, thought, thought that he was ignorant for that. And so he'd come back and he'd try to take advantage of him. Maybe he thought that the kings that had been defeated wouldn't take defeat so lightly. And so they'd come back for retaliation and, and revenge. Whatever the reason was, what we see here in verse one is that God comes to Abram. This is the first time the Bible uses that very familiar phrase, the word of the Lord came. It's a phrase that's used over a thousand times in the Old Testament right here is the very first time we read it. This is also the first time we ever see those reassuring words, do not be afraid. Or as the ESV says, fear not. Fear not. So, so God comes to Abram to reassure him and notice that he gives Abram, in the I am statement, he says, I am your shield. That I am should sound very familiar to us. At, at uh, the burning bush, God said to, to Moses, I am that I am over and over. Jesus said, used that phrase in the gospel of John. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And, and the religious leaders would get so worked up because they said he's making himself out to be God. Well, guess what? He was God. So he could very easily say that. Now this comes immediately too. I think it's interesting here in Genesis 15, this comes immediately after the encounter with Melchizedek, the king and the priest, who is a very mysterious character in scripture, but is also a very clear picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, our king of kings. And so God is essentially saying to Abraham here, Abram, you have a king to protect you and you have a priest to pray for you. And it's all couched in this language of I am. Listen, friends, if you don't hear anything else I say today, I want you to hear this. God's I am is perfectly adequate for your I am not. May I say that again in case you missed it? God's I am is perfectly adequate for your I am not. When you look at the situations that you're facing right now and you say, I am not strong enough for this, God says, I am. 
When you look at whatever you're facing, the financial struggle, the relational issue, the vocational difficulty that you're going through, whatever it may be, and when you say, I can't get through this, God says, I can get you through this. God's I am is perfectly adequate for your I am not. Your life is only as big as your faith and your faith is only as big as your God. You might spend time looking at yourself and be discouraged, but instead by faith, you need to look to God and you need to be encouraged. Understand that when everything all around you looks bleak, God is still the provider of justification. The promise of his justification is, is an amazing promise now, justification, let's understand this. It's not just a, a theological concept, but it's also a technical term that describes our legal standing before God. To be justified means that, that we have been declared to be righteous before him. We are declared to be accepted by God and to have been made a part of his family. I liken this to the creation account in the earlier chapters of Genesis. You know, as the Bible opens, this is the very first thing that we read, that, that God is creating everything God spoke, and it was so. The, the Hebrew of Genesis chapter 1 literally says, God said, light be, and light was. God said, land be, and land was. He, he simply spoke and it came into existence. It's what theologians call creation by divine fiat, by the divine word of God. God simply spoke and it came about. And likewise, that is how justification works. God speaks and it becomes so. You know, when we speak, we say something and maybe it comes to pass, maybe it doesn't. But when God speaks, things become reality. And what has God said? God has said, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God has declared that when we are in Christ, we are justified. We aren't made right because of any inherent or intrinsic merit on our own part, but simply because God has declared it to be so. And he has declared it to be so. He can declare it to be so because he is the provider of justification. Let me, let me try to illustrate this a little more. Maybe you're familiar, probably all of us are familiar with presidential pardons. Typically, the outgoing president will offer a number of presidential pardons to convicted individuals just before they leave office, even though the president has the authority to offer that pardon at any time. For example, on August the 9th, 1974, Gerald Ford was sworn in as our 38th president. Less than one month later, September 8th of 1974, he granted a full and an unconditional pardon to former President Richard Nixon, immunizing him from prosecution for any federal crimes he had ever committed or may have committed or taken part in while he was president. That's a common practice for presidents. Our most recent outgoing president, President Trump, issued 143 pardons during his time in office, 116 of them during his final week in office. Actually, that's very few, relatively very few, compared to many others of our president. Only the first President Bush issued fewer pardons than President Trump. Every other president issued more, sometimes many more, including Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who issued an astounding 2,819 pardons during his time in office. Granted, he was in a lot longer than most presidents, but still, 2,819 pardons. 
President Truman issued 1,913 pardons, and both Presidents Eisenhower and Wilson were also north of 1,000 presidential pardons. Wikipedia describes a pardon as, quote, a government decision to allow a person who has been convicted of a crime to be free and absolved of that conviction as if they were never convicted, end quote. As if they were never convicted. That reminds me of what, maybe you've heard this too, of what I've heard, how I've heard justification described. Justification means just as if I had never sinned. When we are justified, it is just as if we'd never sinned. Now, that doesn't mean we haven't sinned because the scripture's clear. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And look, you're looking at the chief of sinners right here. You know, I, Paul, I know Paul said in the scripture that he was the chief of sinners, but there are many days I think I have him outdone. You know, I, I, I look at, I know what I'm thinking about and what's going on in my heart. And I'm like, woe is me. How can God forgive someone like me? But he does because of Jesus. And, and it's, it's, it's because I'm in him that I'm right and that, that I'm forgiving, not because of anything that I've ever done. And, and God doesn't forgive me just for one single sin, but for every sin I've ever have committed or ever will commit. We've been pardoned because the debt for that sin has been paid by Jesus through his death on the cross. Through faith in him, we are declared innocent because of his sacrifice. Go over to Galatians 3. Let, let, me, let me look at some passages there. This sheds some more light on, the, on this promise. We read in, in verse 9 of Galatians chapter 3, it says, consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. That faith is rooted in believing the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul, who's, who's writing Galatians 3, even quotes from our passage here in Genesis 15. He quotes from Genesis 15, 6, when he says in Galatians 3, 6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. We're gonna look at that verse in a little bit more detail in just a bit, but what we need to understand here is that the promise of justification is focused on the person and work of Jesus. Without Jesus, there is no promise. But in him, it is an amazing promise. As 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 says, for every one of God's promises is yes and amen in him. But you know, like we so often do, Abram chose to focus on the negative rather than the positive. Here, here's an amazing promise that God gives to him. But look at verses two and three. And notice what, what I like to call the problem of justification. Even though this glorious promise is given by God, Abram can't seem to help but focus upon his circumstances as if God didn't already know it. Abram informs God that he has no son. He tells God that all his inheritance is go to, going to go to somebody named Eliezer of Damascus, who's thought to be the same person referred to in Genesis 24 two, which says, Abraham said to his servant, the elder of his household who managed all he owned. That's thought to be the, the same person being referred to there. Abram, like many of us, was too quick to focus on the problem rather than the promise. I want you to think about your own life today, church. What are you focused on? Are you focused on the problem? Do you know that you're going home to a problem that you're gonna to have to deal with? Or can you focus on the promise that God has given to you? Where is your focus? Abram wondered, how can this 
be true, God. You have given me no heir. You have given me no son. Therefore, the promise sounds almost too good to be true. This, this is now, this is interesting. This is the fourth time that God had spoken directly to Abram. And each time, the promise of a descendant had been involved. In Genesis 12, 2, the original call of God when he was in Ur of the Chaldees to, to leave his land and to go to the land that, that he was going to be shown, God said, I will make you into a great nation. Now, it's not specifically stated that you'll have heirs there, but it's sort of assumed if he's going to be a great nation, many descendants, he's going to have to start somewhere. So there's the implied promise of descendants in that. Genesis 12, 7 tells us that while he's passing through Canaan, God literally says to your offspring, I will give this land, the promise of descendants. This is the second time that God had spoke to Abram and included that promise. The third time is recorded in Genesis 13, 15 and 16, after Abram had returned from the debacle down in Egypt. God says, I will give you and your offspring forever all the land you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted but I don't have a son, God. I, I'm childless, Abraham says. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And, and then look at verse three. In an almost condemnatory tone, Abram says, look, you have given me no offspring. So a slave born in my house will be my heir. It's really almost a daring statement on the part of Abram to, to make this accusation and to put the responsibility on God. But isn't that what we kind of do as well? A strong hurricane hits and brings destruction. And we say, God, why'd you allow that to happen? You could have steered that storm out to sea. A loved one gets cancer and dies. And we dare to accuse God and say, you could have brought healing, God. But why didn't you? We are so, so quick to forget that God is sovereign and that God knows what he's doing. So many times like Abram, we sit in judgment over God and, and we insist that he justify his actions to us. That didn't work out too well for Job, did it? Remember that story in the Old Testament? At one point in the story, Job is demanding that God come down and face him. If he would come down here, I would talk to him like a man and I would give him a piece of my mind. That is basically what Job is saying. And so guess what happens? God comes down and God talks to Job. And after God finishes, Job, this is the Dooley translation here. Job pretty much says, I'll just keep my mouth shut now. I'm just an idiot who has no idea what he's talking about. That is essentially what Job is saying at the end of the book. I am clueless. Folks, it is never our place to question God or demand that he justify himself to us. But that's what we see Abraham doing here in Genesis 15. You've given me no air. This is your fault, God. At this point, there seems to be a lack of trust on Abram's part. I have no child, even though he'd been told multiple times that he was gonna have an heir. And that, friends, pure and simple, is the problem of justification, a lack of trust. When we can't trust God, we can't be justified. Can I say that again? Because this is critically important that you get this. When we can't trust God, we can't be justified. Abraham is about to learn that he could trust God even when he has no comprehension of how things could possibly work out. 
So what was he about to learn? Well, notice next the picture of justification in verses four and five. God, God could have easily been short and sarcastic here. He could have said, you are so dense and so untrusting, Abraham. I have told you over and over and over. How many times am I going to have to say it, Abraham? But notice that God didn't respond that way to Abraham and he doesn't respond that way to you or me as well. Instead, he responds with grace. And out of grace, instead of retaliating, he clarifies with an amazing picture. God says, Abraham, you are gonna have a descendant. And in fact, you're gonna have more descendants than you can number. They're gonna share 23 of your chromosomes. They're gonna come from you, Abraham, not from someone in your house. Look at the sky, Abram. Those stars up there, that's gonna clue you in about your offspring. One of my favorite Christian singers was Rich Mullins. I say was because he passed away tragically in an automobile accident 24 years ago. But one of my favorite songs that he sings is the song, Sometimes by Step. And when I read these verses here in Genesis 15, I, I, I think of the words to the second verse of that song. Those words go as follows. Sometimes I think of Abraham, how one star he saw had been lit for me. Can you just imagine in your sanctified imagination, God telling Abraham, look up there at all those stars. And as he's looking, he's like, oh, that's Mark Dooley. He's not gonna be with us for 4,000 years, but, but that's him. And I see Adam Polk over there and, and there's Jeremy Roten. And, and look, that's Rick Benefield. And Dave Morris is right beside of him. And put your name in there. If you are in Christ, when Abraham looked up at those innumerable stars, he was seeing us. One star he saw had been lit for me. That song goes on and says, he was a stranger in this land and I am that no less than he. And on this road to righteousness, sometimes the climb can be so steep. I may falter in my steps, but never beyond your reach. Abram was coming to learn that he was never beyond the reach of God. Perhaps prior to this, Abram had begun to believe that he'd somehow failed God, that there was something he hadn't done. But in reality, God was steadily at work. It may have seemed like he wasn't doing much, but one of the basic lessons of faith is that God's will is accomplished in his way and in his time. And we can rest confident and secure in that. Listen, God didn't ask Abram and Sarah to figure out how to have a child. He just asked them to be available so that he could accomplish his plan and his purposes through them. Friends, in the same way, God doesn't always ask you to figure things out. He just asks you to be obedient and available. And so today, maybe as you look at your life, Things look bleak, things look dark. It seems that there's a sense of failure. Someone has well said, when the outlook is bleak, try the uplook. So stop looking outwardly and start looking upwardly to God. We need to learn to look to God and trust him. And that is exactly what Abraham begins to do. So finally today, I want us to consider the peace of justification. I wanna camp for just a few minutes in this final verse, verse six. It seems that Abram makes a mental transition here. Once again, God says, I will give you an heir. And while it may not have clicked the first few times, it seems to finally click. As verse six says, Abram believed the Lord. 
and he credited it to him for righteousness. And when Abram believed, he experienced peace. What changed for him? Well, note this. Note this, because this is interesting and this is important. At this point, you know what changed? Not a blame thing. Nothing changed materially. Abram is still without an heir at this point, but he's no longer without hope because through faith, he is believing. And the result is that God counted him as righteous. This means Abraham became justified before God. Again, let's consider what it means to be justified. We spoke earlier in terms of pardon, but not just pardon in that our sins are forgiven, but justified in that God now looks at us through the merits of his son's perfection. And I think that's what we see here in verse six. This verse is often called the John three sixteen of the Old Testament. It's the first reference in the Bible to Abram's faith. It's, it's such an important verse that it's quoted three times in the New Testament. We looked earlier at Galatians 3, 6, but it's also quoted in Romans 4, 3 and in James 2, 23. There are three key words that are used here. Those are the words believed, credited, and righteousness. Let's take just a quick moment and, and let's look at each of them. First is the word believed. That translates a Hebrew word that means to lean your whole weight upon. Abram was now leaning upon the promises of God and that's exactly what we need to do as well. Remember, we aren't saved by making promises to God. We are saved by believing his promises to us. So many people say, oh Lord, you know, if, if you do this, then here's what I'll do for you. And they think I must be right with God because he did it for me. Now, I, you know, I made this promise. I got to keep it so that I can stay saved. And that's not how sal salvation works. Salvation works by believing the promise of God that Jesus died in your place. He paid the penalty for your sins and that all who call upon him shall be saved. We need to believe God's promises to us. We need to lean our weight upon him. But then there's the word credited. This is, this is critically important to see here. This is what the New Testament calls imputation. It means to put to one's account. You see, Abram wasn't saved by obeying God or promising to obey him. He was saved by believing God. And it was that belief that was credited as righteousness. God put righteousness to his account, but, but, it's critically important to notice what he believed. Abraham had believed God before. God said, leave the land of Ur the Chaldees when he was there, leave your land and go to the land that I'm gonna show you. And what did Abraham do? He believed God and he got up and he left. He believed God, but he was not considered righteous at that point. Whenever he, he got to the promised land, God showed him all of it. And he said, I'm going to give you all of this. You are going to possess it. And Abraham believed God about that. But God did not say you are righteous. When did God say you are righteous? When was righteousness credited to him? It's when he believed God about the promise of an heir. The promise of an heir. Now, who was that heir? Well, initially it was his son, Isaac, but ultimately down the line, that heir was Jesus Christ because Jesus came from the line of Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob, all the way down the ages through King David until eventually a young virgin in Israel by the name of Mary gave birth to the very son of God. You see in all ages, salvation ultimately rests in Christ. He is the promised heir who would be the Messiah. It's not mere faith 
that saves, but specifically it's faith in Jesus that saves. Where's your faith today, church? Are you believing in the church? Don't believe in the church. The church is a fallible institution. It's a great institution. Jesus loves the church. He died for the church. You need to be a part of the church, but the church isn't gonna save you. Don't believe in your morality and your ethical lifestyle. You need to be a moral person. You need to live a good ethical life. That's how God calls us to live that way, but it's not gonna save anybody. We need to believe in Jesus. Only Jesus saves. Only his blood is sufficient to cover our sins. And only when we believe in that will it be credited to us for the final thing we need to look at today, that is righteousness. This is still our greatest need today. It is not enough to be religious. God demands not just righteousness, but perfect righteousness. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, therefore be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. How in the world do we achieve that standard? We don't. Not one of us in here can ever achieve that standard. But Jesus not only can, Jesus did. You see, righteousness is not something earned. It's something received. Through faith in him and belief in him, we are given his righteousness. It has made our very own. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Therefore God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. A great exchange took place at Calvary. Your sin, my sin, the sin of all who are in Christ were put upon him and he paid the penalty. And in exchange, we received his righteousness. That's a trade right there. That's a trade I'm up for. That's a trade I'll take any day. That's a trade I did take many years ago and I've never regretted it receiving that precious gift of eternal life, that righteousness of Christ that comes through faith in him. Talk about something that provides peace, knowing that we're right with God because we've trusted Jesus is the only thing that ultimately brings peace. You know, people today are, are looking for peace in so many ways. Many people seek peace through relationships, but even the strongest of relationships eventually falters. Others seek peace through material goods. I remember years ago, the bumper sticker, those of you who are my age and older, maybe a, a little bit younger might remember this, uh, but I remember when I was a teenager and a young adult driving around, people put these bumper stickers on their car and it said, he who dies with the most toys wins. And I remember seeing that and scratching my head and thinking, really? You think that's what life's all about? to get the most stuff, you know, to have the most toys. That's why I really loved the bumper sticker that came out not too long after that. It said, he who dies with the most toys, dot, 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 still dies. I'm like, that's truth right there. You know, you can spend your life accumulating the, the, the dream home, go on the dream vacation, have all the furs, all the jewelry, have the best car. You can have dozens of cars. You can get all the stuff. You're still gonna die. And you're still going to stand before God. You're not going to find peace in all of your stuff. I'm not saying it's wrong to have a house. and a, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying if that's our hope and we think that that's going to bring satisfaction, we're going to find out soon enough it brings no satisfaction. Only Christ brings peace. We need to look to him. We could go on and on detailing the plethora of ways that people seek peace. But the only thing that truly brings peace is being right with God through Jesus Christ. Will you receive 
the peace of justification that comes through trusting Christ. Will you like Abram believe the Lord? If so, I tell you confidently today that he will credit that to you as righteousness, just like he did for Abram. And just like him, you too will be justified. I heard about a man in England who years ago put his Rolls Royce on a boat and went across the continent, uh, went across the sea rather, or to the continent to go on vacation, or as they like to call it in England, he went on a holiday. And so uh, he went over there and was going to spend some time. And while he was driving around Europe, something happened to the motor of his car. This was in the days before cell phones and email. So he sent a cable back to the Rolls-Royce company back in England. And, and he asked them, he said, I'm having trouble with my car and I need to know what to do so that I can continue my holiday. Well, the Rolls-Royce people didn't just tell him, they put a mechanic on an airplane and they flew the mechanic over there. And the mechanic found them and repaired the car and then flew back to England, allowing the man to continue his holiday, which he did and enjoyed his time, but all the while wondering and thinking to himself, what in the world is this gonna cost me? How much is this going to cost? Well, he got back home expecting to find a bill in his mailbox, but nothing was there. So he got in touch with the company and he asked them how much he owed them. And this was their response. Dear sir, there is no record anywhere in our files that anything ever went wrong with your Rolls Royce. Friends, when you stand before God in judgment and you think about all of your sin you may well begin to wonder, what is this going to cost me? I can tell you the answer to that because the scripture's given us the answer. It's in Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. That is what it will cost you. But if like Abram, you've believed the word of the Lord, specifically the word about the Messiah, when you inquire of God about the cost of your sin, he will look at you and say, there is no record anywhere that you owe anything. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That, friends, is justification. Are you looking to Jesus for your justification today? Only he can justify. The gospel leads to justification. So when we look to him, we will be justified. I implore you and invite you to do so today, to put your trust in him alone. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for the redeeming work of Christ, for all that he has done to justify us, to make us right with you. We know, Lord, that it does not come because of our own merits. It does not come because of our lifestyle. It does not come because of who we are. It does not come because of our church attendance. It does not come because of our tithing and our giving. It, none of that matters when it comes to justification. All those things are important. And we want to live for you. We want to live the right way. But Father, more than anything, we need to be right with Jesus. So I pray today that if there's anybody here who is not right with Christ, that before this day ends, before their head hits their pillow today, they will surrender their life to Jesus and trust him and him alone for eternal life. We thank you for this time of worship, for this reminder from your word, for the opportunity to lift our voice in praise, to fellowship with one another, and pray that as we conclude this service in just a few minutes, that, that you would go, go before us and go with us as we go forth from this place that we might honor and glorify Christ.